Well, welcome if you are joining us online. My name's Alistair. I'm the lead pastor of St. Pete's. And this is actually my last sermon before my sabbatical begins uh, next Monday, the 17th of May. So uh, no pressure. If you want to learn more about my sabbatical and more about what we're up to in this season of our life as a church, next Sunday is our all-parish meeting, so please register for that, because I'd love to check in with you before I check out for a season. But before we uh, dig into God's Word, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be gathered in person and to be gathered virtually as well. Uh, And although we are together and apart, uh, it is your Spirit, Lord, that unites us your spirit that transcends all boundaries, whether physical or virtual. So Lord, help us abide richly with you this morning and be reminded that you are our power and that you are good. So as we open your word, we ask that you'd apply it to our minds so we not grow shallow and that you'd apply it to our hearts so we not grow cold and that you'd apply it to our feet. And we not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. We pray all of these things in the precious and powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, as you know, we are slowly, uh, ever so slowly, working our way through the gospel of Luke. Uh, Luke is a well-researched narrative and collection of eyewitness testimony about Jesus. And the New Testament tells us that Luke is a physician. But in his gospel, he acts more like an optometrist. He's very concerned about healing our vision of Jesus, helping us progressively see with more clarity who Jesus is. Uh, So, so far, Luke has told us that Jesus is the expected Messiah of Israel. He's the son of God. And in a passage in the last chapter of Luke, he took us to the hometown synagogue of Jesus, where Jesus said he was the fulfillment of these prophetic words from the prophet Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor. And Jesus says, he came into the world to proclaim the good news of God's kingdom. This is why he has come. But along the way, I've made the point um, of, of examining how do people respond to this good news? And so far, every response stopped short. You know, in Nazareth, the people marvel over his gracious words, and moments later, they try to murder him. In Capernaum, people are amazed by his authority, but they'll be among those who shout crucify him. And while marveling in amazement over Jesus, these are not wrong responses. They don't go far enough. And so, so far in Luke's gospel, nobody has gone beyond these reactions until now. So verses five, uh, chapter five, verses one through 11, which we just read, it's so easy to get caught up in the miracle, isn't it? You know, the scene opens with a crowd so eager to hear what Jesus has to say that he has to get out into Simon Peter's boat and teach from that vantage point. And then it happens. You know, Jesus finishes fishing and he turns to Simon Peter, who's going to be among his very first followers. And Peter and his associates, James and John, they're professional seasoned fishermen. They've been out all night trying to catch fish. They've caught nothing. And now they're out in their boat with this interesting yet peculiar rabbi. And he turns to them and he says, why don't you try casting your nets one more time? And you can almost hear Simon Peter like swallowing the words. Like, why don't you stick to teaching? I'll stick to fishing. But Simon gives it a shot and the catch is so large that their boat almost capsizes. 
And all of this is very, very interesting. But the real miracle is not the catch of fish, but Simon Peter's response. Luke points out that Peter is amazed. He marvels over this catch. But something deeper happens in Peter. And that's what I want to look at together this morning. So today I just have two things. Uh, The response of Peter and the response of Jesus. The response of Peter and the response of Jesus. So let's begin with the response of Peter. Uh, Luke writes in verses 8 through 10. When Simon Peter saw the miracle, he fell, fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that he had taken. And so were also James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Now, is this the response you expect to a miracle? You know, if something like this happened to us, we might expect to be amazed. We might marvel, wow, what just took place? And these are the sort of responses we've seen so far in Luke, and they're sort of the response we'd expect when you see a miracle. But something else is happening here in Simon Peter. He blurts out that he's a sinner and then tells Jesus to go away. You know, it's not the response we expect to a miracle. So what's happening? Well, have you ever had a moment where something happens to you and it, it knocks your sense of self off balance? When I was in the fifth grade, uh, my friend Sean and I, we love to play wall ball during recess. Any wall ballers among us? Yeah, wall ball. If you don't know what it is, you throw a ball against the wall and you take turns catching it and you do that back and forth. And while we're doing this, Sean and I had a custom of bantering. And one day during our wall ball session, Sean threw the ball against the wall and I caught it. And then he asked me, who do you think could be your girlfriend? So I threw the ball and he caught it and I responded, Sean, my friend, let's not reduce women to objects to be pursued. What matters most is developing a mutually self-giving relationship based in love and respect. No, I wasn't so cultured. In all seriousness, I said, anyone. And I threw the ball and he caught it. And Sean just started laughing at me. He threw the ball against the wall and he said, no way, you're not as good looking as me. And I was so shocked by his laughter and what he said that I forgot we were playing wall ball and smack, you know, took the ball to the head. And it was as if God descended from the heavens and smacked me upside the head. And it's a sobering moment for a young egotistical psyche, a literal bruise to my ego. My sense of self was knocked off balance. Scripture describes all sorts of wall ball experiences, moments that knock people's sense of self off balance, times when people are given the gift of a fresh, more honest and truthful picture of who they are. The prophet Moses encountered God in a bush that was burning but not consumed by the fire. And when God speaks, Scripture says, Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. When the prophet Isaiah saw a vision of the Lord enthroned over all of creation, he cries out, woe is me, I'm cursed, I'm a man of unclean lips. In his old age, the prophet Daniel had a vision and encounter so grand that it sapped all of his strength. And he tells us my radiant appearance, which is pretty humble, my radiant appearance was fearfully changed and I retained no strength. I fell on my face. In his old age, the apostle John has this vision of the ascended Lord Jesus. And John, 
the beloved disciple, one of Jesus's closest friends, John tells us, when I saw him, I fell on my face as though dead. Prophet after prophet, even one of the friends closest to Jesus, a glimpse of God gives them a fresh sense of themselves. And you see them unravel. You see fear, declaring sinfulness, losing all strength, falling down as if dead. And so scripture tries to help us see a spiritual encounter, a spiritual pattern of encounter here. An encounter of God is a fearful reality. And the reality is whenever you see God, whether it's within this life or before him in judgment, on that last and final day, when you see God, you are going to fear him. Peter gets a glimpse of who Jesus is and he says, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And Luke's hinting at something for us. A spiritual pattern is happening. You know, Peter, he's encountering more than an interesting rabbi. He's encountering more than a miracle worker. And although Peter doesn't know it yet, on some level he senses it. He's, he's standing before the Holy One. In the presence of Jesus, Peter unravels in a way similar to Isaiah. He confesses, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. This is the first time actually in Luke's gospel the word sinner comes up. And in Christian circles, we could say this is an overly familiar word. But it's also a word that carries a lot of baggage, doesn't it? You know, from the outside looking in, referring to ourselves as sinners, it sounds like we have a really negative sense of self-worth. And indeed, that can be true of some people sometimes. But this confession, Luke shows us, I am a sinner. It's the first appropriate response to Jesus in the gospel of Luke. And it's a confession that actually leads to a healthy sense of self-worth. And we'll get to that point in a moment. But I want to say we're not naturally inclined to identify ourselves as sinner. That is not where we go to when describing ourselves. And the theologian Stanley Hauerwas says it's for this reason. The story Christians tell themselves of God exposes the unwelcome fact that I'm a sinner. For without such a narrative, the fact and nature of my sin cannot help but remain hidden in self-deception. You see, our sin prefers to hide and remain unidentified. And it's only an encounter of God and his story or his power that unveils our sin. And so Hauerwas is saying, unless we have a change in our point of reference, we'll never see ourselves as sinners. Have you ever wondered, you know, like what why is it that as people, we typically make our point of reference for who we are, people who are worse than us? You know, we, we compare ourselves to murderers or adulterers or Instagram influencers or dictators. And we want, why is it? Why is it that we always compare ourselves to someone that we perceive to be worse than us? We want to suppress the truth. We want to suppress the truth. And this is why Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount goes to the spirit of the law. He takes laws like do not murder, do not uh, commit adultery. And he says, look, if you feel angry in your heart, if you lust after someone, you've broken the spirit of the law. And so when your point of reference changes to the Sermon on the Mount or to the teachings of Jesus, you can have one of two reactions. Either Jesus is asking way too much of us 
He's being unreasonable. Or you have a fresh perspective of yourself. You see that we cannot possibly live up to the standard of God's kingdom. That we are, in fact, sinners who need his mercy and grace to help us become the people of his kingdom. But notice in our passage, it's not Christ's teaching. It's not his teaching that unravels Peter. Peter spent all morning listening to Jesus teach. And he hasn't been convicted by whatever he heard Jesus say. It's the miracle. It's the demonstration of power. It's the catch of fish that knocks Peter off kilter and it gives him this fresh and honest picture of himself. And so the new point of reference for Peter in this moment is Christ's power. When he sees Christ's power, like the prophets throughout scripture, Peter realizes he's standing before the Holy One and he is unholy. And so he declares, depart from me for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. So I want to ask, do you have that sense of God's power in Christ? Has your point of reference changed? Have you compared yourself to God in Christ and found it to be a wall ball experience, an unraveling, a humbling that evokes a confession, an honest confession. I am a sinner. This is Peter's response. And as we'll see in how Jesus responds to him, it's the first appropriate response to him. So let's go to our second and last point, the response of Jesus. You know, the presence of God, I've said, can knock us off kilter. It can evoke a healthy fear that gives us a fresh and honest sense of ourselves. But I want to be clear about something. Although God is rightly fearful, God's intent, and I want you to hear this, God's intent is not to diminish us by his power or to intimidate us by how great he is and how small we are in comparison. Sometimes when I get frustrated with my daughters who happen to be in the front row, Sometimes when I get frustrated with my daughters, I speak in a tone that's not yelling, but isn't exactly loving. They call it my serious voice. I suggested stern voice, but the pun was lost on them. <laughs> but one time when I spoke in this voice to Ansley, my oldest daughter, my serious voice, she ran upstairs to her bedroom and she started to cry. And I was about to go upstairs and Julia said, let me go. Let me check on her first. And Ansley told Julia that she didn't like it when I talk in that serious voice because it made, it made her feel small. And it broke my heart. That's the last thing I want to make my daughter feel. So I went upstairs and spent some time with her to repair. And I asked Ansley, how can we do things differently? How can we do things differently? I told her, you know, sometimes you do things wrong and it's frustrating for daddy, but I don't want to make you feel small. So what can we do? Well, now all I have to do is say, I want to speak in my serious voice. And that's usually enough. But here's my point. I don't want my daughters to relate to me on the basis of fear. I want to foster a healthy attachment on the basis of love. And yes, there can be an appropriate fear toward me as their father. I have power, power over them. I can shut down show night. I can take away screens. I have some power. But if fear was the basis of our relationship, they would never attach to me. Because you pull away from someone you're scared of. And it's the same with God. It's the same with God. It is appropriate for us to fear God. He is altogether a different kind of being. He wields unfathomable power over us and over all of creation. 
but God doesn't want to make us small because God wants to have a relationship with us, not on the basis of fear, but on the basis of love. And how do we know this? Well, look at our passage. Look at verse 10. What are the first words out of Jesus's lips? Do not fear. Do not fear. I've said scripture shows us a spiritual pattern here. A true encounter of God will cause us to unravel, but this isn't the whole pattern. It's just the first two steps. We have an encounter, we respond in unraveling, and then there is assurance. Encounter, response, assurance. Someone encounters God, they unravel, and then they're assured. The prophet Moses, he's overcome with fear, and then God promises he'll be with him. The prophet Isaiah unravels and confesses his lips are unclean. And then an angel of the Lord takes a coal and touches it to Isaiah's lips and atones for his sins. The prophet Daniel loses all his strength and the Lord lifts him up and gives him strength and says, I love you, Daniel. The apostle John falls down as if dead at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus picks him up and says, do not be afraid. There is a spiritual pattern of encounter, response, assurance. And if you've paid attention or if you go back and reread parts of Luke, you'll see this has already happened a few times in Luke's gospel. When Zechariah sees the angel Gabriel, he's overwhelmed with fear. And the first thing Gabriel says is, do not be afraid. On the evening of Jesus's birth, the angels appear to the shepherds and it says they were filled with great fear. And the first thing the angel says, fear not. And now Peter encounters Jesus. He unravels, depart from me. I'm a sinner. But Luke has set the stage for us to see that a spiritual pattern is happening here. An encounter of the divine, a rightful fear. And now Peter hears the words of assurance. Jesus says, do not fear. Do not fear. It doesn't mean that Peter did something wrong in feeling afraid. As I've said, that's a healthy response. But Jesus seeks to calm and still his fears. This shows that Jesus has not come into the world to make us feel small or to hold the truth about our sinfulness over our heads. You see, although the power of God will evoke fear in us in a rightful fear, the goodness of God moves towards us in love with the assuring words, do not fear. But I want to say the sequence of this spiritual pattern It doesn't stop here. There's encounter, there's response, there's assurance and calling. The prophet Moses, after going through this pattern, was called to lead the people of God out of slavery in Egypt into the promised land. The prophets Isaiah and Daniel, they're called to proclaim the words of the Lord to the people of God. And this was also the calling of the apostle John. So the encounter and the response and the assurance, it ends in calling a sharing in the purposes of God. Because Jesus says to Peter in verse 10, do not be afraid from now on, you'll be catching people. Do not be afraid from now on, you'll be catching people. And so Jesus responds to Peter and James and John who were with him by inviting them to follow him. And this is the first time this has happened in the gospel of Luke. 
the first appropriate response is coupled by the first invitation to be a part of what God is doing in Christ. And this is how we know this is what Jesus is looking for in people. He sees something appropriate in them and says, follow me. The fear of the Lord paves way to that invitation to share in the calling of Christ. James, Peter, and John share in the purpose of Jesus. They're going to join Jesus in his mission to proclaim the good news of God's kingdom. And Jesus says they're going to catch people. And it's a little play on words in the Greek, actually. Uh, the word Jesus uses is literally to capture alive. As fishermen, they're used to capturing things and they die. And then you sell them because that's what you do with fish. But now they're going to catch people and they're going to catch them by giving them life and helping them find liberty through the good news of God's coming kingdom in Christ. And from this experience, something stirred right, so deeply in all three of them that Luke adds, they left everything and followed Jesus. This spiritual pattern of transformation, of encounter, and response and assurance and calling was so profoundly formative for them. They lost everything and followed Jesus. And so I just have three things I want to consider as we wrap up. Do you see what I did there? I start with two points and then I tack on three more. <laughs> First, do you have the fear of the Lord? Do you have the fear of the Lord? In a prayer in the book of Psalms, David says that those who reject God do so because there is no fear of God before their eyes. And in their own eyes, he says, they flatter themselves too much to detect or hate their sin. So when you don't fear the Lord, you deny your sin. That's what David's saying. Whereas the book of Proverbs, a collection of Hebraic wisdom, it says the fear of the Lord actually leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. So do you have this healthy fear? The fear of God that leads to life and satisfying rest in the soul? Or do you deny your sinfulness because you don't fear the Lord? You know, you may or may not have an experience like we've read in the prophets and the apostles. I think it's important to name, like, that's their story. That's their experience. It, will look different for each of us, but have you come undone before Jesus? Have you seen yourself for who you are before him? Do you know that you're a sinner, that you're broken and you're falling short, but do you know the joy of bringing all of that to Jesus, bringing your sins and being forgiven, having the assurance that although your sins are scarlet red, you will be washed white as snow by the power of his cross. Do you fear the Lord? Second, Peter doesn't have it all figured out when he starts following Jesus. And it's important not to overlook that. You know, sometimes I meet people who think they have to have it all sorted out before they take that next step towards Jesus. And certainly do the soul searching, do the exploring, ask questions, find answers. But sometimes the next step looks like bringing all our uncertainty with us as we follow him. You know, Peter doesn't have all the answers in this moment, does he? But he's seen enough of Jesus to follow him. And if you look at the life of Peter, you'll see that the journey is full of highs and lows, ups and downs, glories and heartbreak. 
but it's a journey moving in the direction of Jesus. You don't have to have it all figured out before you start following him. Third and last, you know, I've met a lot of people, even in our community, who want to get on with the calling, but without the other steps of the spiritual pattern. You don't want to deal with encountering God and unraveling and having a personal encounter of grace and assurance. Because for many different reasons, and sometimes legitimate, sometimes it's because of what you've been through in the church, but you don't identify as a sinner. And instead, you want to focus on all the good that Jesus offers to the world. You, you want to proclaim the kingdom through works of justice and mercy and, and trying to make life better for the oppressed and the marginalized. And of course, this is a great desire. But we cannot truly share in what Jesus is doing in the world without the first steps. Without encountering him, unraveling before him being assured of his love and grace because that's what he's looking for as he invites us into his calling. And so the last few sermons, as you know, I've talked a lot about we're invited to share in the why of Jesus. We get to be an extension of what he's doing in the world and that can look like a whole lot of different things, but we can only share in his purpose as we share in his life. And it's not enough to be enamored with his mission and purpose without being enamored with him. So may we know the fear of the Lord. May we encounter the living presence of Christ himself. May we unravel, may we be assured with grace and may we find our place in his call. Let's pray.